turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1. If you are using the Pew Bible right here, uh, page 856 is where we're going to be. And if you're visiting, uh, my name is Paul. I'm one of the ministers here on staff. We're very glad that there's plenty of people here, some of our church family that's traveling. Some of you are traveling and made us part of your uh, holiday weekend before we get back to reality tomorrow. And we're just very glad that you're here to worship Jesus with us. In preparing for the sermon this week, a while ago I threw out the idea of preaching on this passage of Scripture, uh, the Magnificat, or Mary's Song. And, but I was thinking, you know, I didn't want to get too ahead of ourselves on the Christmas season. Uh, we have our traditional Advent sermons coming up. And I was thinking, okay, am I, getting, am I too early on Christmas? And then Jordan took Jesse to Hobby Lobby and made Christmas throw up in the hallway outside of our offices. That was on November 1st, <laughs> Okay. <laughs> So you see that Christmas season here starts on All Saints Day, November, November 1st. And I know I'm not alone in, alone in saying that I love Christmas. I mean, I dig Thanksgiving like anybody, but Christmas is my favorite. And I think it's the music. Uh, I, I don't care. I've heard this song 10,000 times, but a well-sung rendition of Oh Holy Night will still give me goosebumps. Uh, and my favorite band. Uh, if you want a last-minute Christmas gift idea for me, get me tickets to go see Trans-Siberian Orchestra in Grand Rapids, all right? They're, every time it comes on the radio, I've heard it again 10,000 times, but their version of Carol of the Bells, every time it comes on, I'm going to pump the radio up. And it's not actually Carol of the Bells. The actual title of the song is Christmas Eve, Sarajevo 1224, in case you were doubting that I'm actually a fan, all right? <laughs> that still gives me goosebumps. I love Christmas. But as much as I love Christmas, I hate what culture has done to it. And I'm not going to be getting up on a soapbox preaching about consumerism today, even though that's a sermon that I think we all need to hear, myself first of all. On our trip down to Illinois this past week, uh, we turned on the satellite radio to the Christmas channel. And so it's a whole bunch of secular artists singing Christmas songs. And... And I noticed this theme, and I've, I'm pretty thick-headed. It takes about 10,000 times before I hear something really gets through to me. Maybe you picked, on up, picked up on this before I did, but Christmas is no longer about the birth of Christ. It's about the goodness of humanity. It's about the best of us, about family get-togethers, about the charity that we show our fellow man. It's about eggnog and chestnuts roasting, jingle bells, sleighs, and so on and so on. I hope you picked up on the theme of today. God is good. Our king is good. Any goodness that we have is just but a dim reflection of the goodness of our God. When we equivocate Christmas to Charlie Brown specials, and we say that Christmas is all about love, it's all about family, it's all about sharing and thinking of others, and all of those things are important. I love every one of those things. But the message of Christmas is that we, God's prized creation, the image bearers of God, we rejected his way for us. We screwed this world up so bad, he looked down at our pitiful state, and then he looked to Jesus and said, will you go save them? And Jesus said, yes. And you and I are now blessed. God, our king, took on flesh, and he extended an invitation to all of us to follow him into his kingdom. Now, I don't want to script what becoming a follower of Jesus looks like, because I think it looks a little bit different for every one of us. 
But one of the things that all believers have in common is that we come to this point of realization where we understand the reality of who Jesus is, and we get to respond one way or another. And today, I'm going to be talking about someone who I believe to be the first Christian. That is, the first follower of Jesus, and that's Mary in my book. I think Mary was an amazing young lady. She was a girl about 14 years old. And there are several people out there who want to elevate Mary to a status that I'm not comfortable with biblically. But I see in this girl's life a beautiful testimony. And the beauty of Mary's life is not found in her perfection. It's found in her faith. Her ability to trust God against what the world would call common sense. So when I say that Mary was the first Christian, I don't know that Mary was the first person saved. I know for a fact she was not the first believer in God, but I would nominate Mary as the first person who placed her life in the hands of Jesus. And she placed her life in the hands of an unborn baby. She believed so much in what God promised to do that she bet it all, her life, her reputation, her safety, she let it all ride on her belief in the goodness and trustworthiness of God. So to set the stage for the text today, an angel had appeared to Mary and informed her that she's going to become pregnant with God's child. And Mary's response was, may it be unto me as you've said. And then Mary escapes to her cousin Elizabeth's house. She spends about six months there during the pregnancy. And upon entering the house, Elizabeth greets her and says, you have the baby, don't you? You know, the baby in my belly, who is John the Baptist, Elizabeth saying, jumped for joy when I heard your voice. And Mary's faith is solidified, and that she sings this passage of Scripture, which in Latin is called the Magnificat, which is a rough translation of the first words of this song. Let's look at it on the screen as I read it. And Mary said, My soul magnifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his offspring forever. Now, Mary was not... A rabbinical student. She was a poor girl who was relatively untrained in the advanced thinking of the law, and yet she points out something significant. She points out who she is and what is going what is going to take for her to believe. She starts off by saying, "My soul and my spirit," and then she testifies about her God. He is mighty. He's holy. He's full of mercy. She believes in who she is in Him, and she doesn't sing about who she is. She sings about who God is. She's not going to be able to do this on her own. My God is able. My God is willing. My God is perfect. And because he's proven all of these things, I will trust him. And if you track along with her throughout the Magnificat, you can see that Mary goes from singing about God, about what God can do for her, to singing what God's going to do with her. And if you get nothing else from today's teaching, I want this thought to stick with you. Christianity is not about what God does for you. Christianity always has been and always will be about what God does with you. And with you, he will make you a blessing. 
He will take all of your talents, abilities, and gifts, and he's not only going to bless you with them, he is going to take those and do more with them than we could ever hope to do on our own. The church is nothing if not a testimony of how God takes the whole and makes it greater than the sum of its parts. Because God's blessings are always meant to be given away and not to be kept. In Luke chapter 2, one of the most famous passages of Scripture, you can practically hear Linus reading it along with me, but uh, the angels appear to the shepherds and they say, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. They say men, not man. It's not a gender thing. They're pointing out that God is doing for all of us what he has always promised to do. And those of us who get to be in on this, we get to be part of a truth that changes history. And those that miss out are doomed to realize the failure and realize what they missed out on. And if you've been with us these past few weeks, we've just wrapped up a series of messages talking about what God loves and what God hates. And if you stayed with us, pay attention to verses 50 through 55. You will see some parallels in scriptures. It parallels from the scripture. We talked about how God loves humility and he hates pride. He loves purity. He hates vanity. And we read in Mary's song that God scatters the proud. He brings down the mighty from their thrones. He exalts the humble, and he sends the rich away empty. Mary is acknowledging that God is now doing everything that he always promised he would do. And it's starting right now with this child in Mary's belly. Something that I fear in bringing the message and introducing the Christmas season for this year is that we lose our wonder. We've heard this story so many times. We've stopped wondering about the incarnation. We stopped wondering about the virgin birth. It says in scripture that after Jesus was born, after all the crazy circumstances that came around the night of Christ's birth, Mary took account of all these things that had happened and pondered them in her heart. I believe that we're going to be talking about this in the coming weeks. She was pondering everything that had to come and happen exactly the way it did for Jesus to be born. Thing was, God was, the virgin birth was part of God's overall story. The virgin birth had to happen so that Jesus could fulfill every prophecy that was said about him. It happened in this way so that we could know beyond a shadow of a doubt who Jesus was. And in this age of skepticism, we may want to just gloss over this part of the story about the virgin birth. But when you hear about it in these coming weeks, either in sermons or on the radio or wherever, just remember that without the virgin birth, Jesus was not who he said he was, and we are all hopeless. We are to be pitied above all men. I believe that the virgin birth was designed to shock us. It's meant to grab our attention. God's love is like this. It is reckless and it is startling. Love that grows over time isn't something that just catches us and causes us to wonder as much as that moment when we just suddenly were in love like that. And I'm not just talking about romance here. I'm talking about reckless, startling love. Carrie learned a long time ago that it's a strategy with me. If she wants something, it's not a selfish thing. It's if she wants something for her family, it, specifically I'm thinking of like a new car or a new puppy, all right? Uh, she, all she has to do is get me on the lot or get me in the same room as that dog. And the moment I sit in the new seat and, or the moment I, I'm holding that puppy to my chest, um, I'm in love. 
all right? It doesn't matter that my mind's telling me the 98 reasons why we shouldn't buy this car, we shouldn't get this puppy. It doesn't matter. I'm in love. What do I have to sign? Give me the keys or give me the leash. I'm going home, all right? It's worth it. It's not just about romance. It's love is something that could just sneak up on us and immediately something we didn't care about before, we care deeply about now. And we give ourselves to it. In verse 50, Mary talks about this. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Fear. There is fear in the Bible. What does it mean to be afraid of God? I remember when I was about nine years old, um, I was struggling at trying to figure out life. I, I had some issues with depression, and my parents took me to a counselor. And the counselor had me uh, fill out this questionnaire about uh, what are my fears. And I was a Sunday school brat. And so I wrote down very godly things like spiders and snakes. But then my third one I wrote down was that I feared God. And I had no idea what I was saying. This poor counselor had to start talking to me about how I don't need to be afraid of God. He's not mad at me. He's not going to flick me off the globe. I had no idea what I was talking about. I just know that the Bible said that you should fear God, so I wrote down that I fear God. And I think that I'm not, I wasn't alone in that because I, it is important that we know what it means when we say that we fear God. There are two kinds of fears, uh, two kinds of fear of God in the scriptures. There's the fear of God's law, but then there's the fear of love. The fear of law is simply defined as, I'm afraid that I might make a mistake, I might break one of God's rules, and then I'm going to be in trouble. And I'd speculate that most of us have this fear, and I want to free you from that, because I believe this is part of why Jesus came, was to get us away from the fear of law. Jesus did not come so that you could have a third chance not to screw up. That's a fear of law. If I don't keep the Ten Commandments, then God's going to hate me. If I don't live a perfect life, then God's going to send me to hell. It's, and there are churches out there that have been cultivated on building this fear of law in us. And instead, I want to build the fear of love. The fear of love is different because the fear of love says, I don't want to wound the one that I, that I love. I don't want to hurt someone who I care about. If you're a parent... Every one of you knows what this, what this is like, the, having the fear of law versus the fear of love. Because the fear of, we don't want our kids to obey just because we're, we happen to be in the same room with them, with them and we can grab them and spank them or discipline them or yell at them. We don't want that to be the reason why they follow our teachings. The, we want them to listen to us, to follow what we tell them because they trust us. Even those, in those moments where they don't understand why we are restricting them in the way that we do, we want them to trust us because we love them and we care about them. Kids, I assure you that this is what your parents' motivation is, that they want you to listen to them because they care about you. And it, this is not about, God's not coming up, you're saying, it's not about I told you so, it's I care about you. I want you to have freedom by following my rules. And Mary says that his mercy extends to those who fear him. Not because he's going to punish us, it's because we don't want to hurt God. We want to treasure God. We want to value God. The fear of love, it's not about the fear of being hurt. It's about the fear of hurting. Psalm 130, verse 4, I fear you because you have forgiven all my sins. And when you understand that, you could see how the fear of love begins. The psalmist is saying, God, I love you, and I don't want to hurt you because of all that you've done for me. 
When the gospel comes in and you realize that you are not saved by what you do, that you are saved by what Jesus did, then disrespecting and devaluing Jesus is something that you never want to do. You don't want to hurt someone who has been so good to you. And I can relate this to the feeling of almost being in an accident. If, if you ever have this moment where you're driving and you either lose control of the wheel if the conditions are bad or someone's drifting across the lane, they're coming towards you and you, get, you escape it at the last moment, but you still have that feeling, you know, that shock feeling. Your face gets flushed, your heart starts pounding, or maybe it's because you just saw that you drove past a cop and you're speeding. I might have done that the other t- day, but anyways... Uh, but there's also, you have this uh, time where, or if you've been in one of those fender benders, uh, where you, your mind just calculates in a moment, like, oh, you're hitting them, all right? And, and you have all these thoughts. It's, it amazes me how our mind does this. You have these thoughts, you're thinking, well, I'm going to have to call the insurance company, my rates are going to go up, and then the police are going to have to come out here, and well, I'm going to have to tell my wife what happened. And all of this is going on in your head, and you're four feet away from the car, and you're not stopping. It's amazing what fear does to prepare us. People often say that we shouldn't live in fear, but actually fear properly applied is healthy. I want my boys to fear fast-moving vehicles. I want them to fear the consequences of poor decisions. I want them to fear danger so that they don't get too close to the edge where it's so easy to slip and fall. So when Jesus asks us to pray and we don't pray, it's not, oh man, uh, uh, why, uh, why do I have to pray? I don't get it. I don't get anything out of it. And no, it's saying, Why wouldn't I want to spend time talking to Jesus today? When Jesus tells us to hide God's word in our hearts so that we might not sin against him, it's not, oh, that means I got to read the Bible. I, I don't get it. It doesn't make any sense to me. And that's the fear of law. The fear of love is that I'm going to ask Jesus to reveal himself to me as I read his word. And I promise you that he will. That this is going to, it's not, I need to read the Bible for five minutes so I can tell, check that off my list. I'm, I'm godly for today. No, it's, Jesus, I want to know you. I want to know your story. I want to get to know you better. Psalm 25, verse 14. The Lord confides in those who fear him. He makes his covenant known to them. And I think this is radically different than what many of us have come to believe. We think that if we just don't do bad, that God will love us more. And Jesus says, no, I already love you more. And now I want to teach you. I want to guide you. I want to be the king of your heart. One is a fear of protecting ourselves. One is, and the other one is a fear of releasing ourselves. And this is the challenge that we all face. And I believe it's what Mary faced. She let this startling, reckless love enter into her life and enter her into a new relationship with him. And not only is God's love, it's startling, it's reckless, it is life-changing, it is freeing. Mary sings about this right now, that she is proclaiming that God's not the only, she is not the only one that God's after. She forecasts you and I into the story. Verse 51. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. One of the troubling things that I find about Christianity, and I'm as guilty of it as anyone in this room, but one of the bubbles that I feel that we need to pop, Christianity is not a private endeavor. 
It never has been. It never can be. Christianity is not something that you can hold within yourself. And then as long as God and I are okay, then as long as in my heart I am good, then everything's okay. The world is telling you that people don't want you to believe in God. In a culture where we are told to be tolerant, the only thing that is considered intolerant is to speak about faith. And now I'm telling you, I'm not telling you to go out there and stand on a street corner and shout at vehicles as they drive by. I don't think that we're ever called to do that. But we all like the sentiment that God put us here for a reason, and I'm going to tell you what that reason is. God put relationships and people in your life, doors and opportunities in front of you, so that you could walk through them displaying the truth that there is a God who loves all of us with great passion. His pursuit of us started in the garden, and he's not done yet. I heard a phrase this way, Christianity is irritatingly public. It's not easy. It's going to be an irritant to us because if our faith is kept inside of us, then it is not a faith that we profess. And let me explain what that looks like. You cannot be in a marriage, you cannot be a parent, and you cannot be a good friend if that relationship, if all those realities are kept inside of you. If they're not on public display. The covenant between Jesus and us is used as, the metaphor that scripture uses is a marriage. You cannot be privately married. You can't be married in private, but then leave the home and live entirely separate lives. Yeah, we might be legally married, but you're not married in covenant. You're not married in intimacy. You're not married in relationship. You aren't struggling and journeying through life together. That's not a marriage if you're not doing those things together. And we all get that. Even though some of us sometimes might want to be, you can't be a parent in private either. I mean, parents, you can't tell me you haven't been those times, your kid's out there doing something in public, and you're just like, well, whose kid is that? I don't, I don't know. <laughs> as irritating as they are, they are still our children, even when they're scrolling around in public. Whose responsibility is it to be the parent? And when they have great success, whose responsibility is it to celebrate with them, to lift them up, and to claim them as our own? It's ours. You can't be in a private, you can't be private in a relationship that matters to you. And what I'm seeing Mary point out here is in her song is that she's going to have to go public with her relationship with God just as he has gone public with his pursuit of us. She won't be ashamed, even though she's going to be called that kind of girl because she got pregnant as a teenager. Even though her parents and her society won't understand the truth of it, she's willing to risk going public and to be the mother of God's son, if that's what God asked her to do. And so, as part of this challenge to become more public, this is my challenge for each one of you this Christmas season, is that if you profess Jesus as Lord, you can no longer answer the question, what did you get for Christmas? Well, nothing. All right. No, because if someone asks you, what did you get for Christmas, I want you to say something like, God's love all over me. All right. And they're going to go, well, you're one of those. Yes, <laughs> be public. Because at least you're not walking around pregnant and unmarried, right? God asked Mary to do that, and he blessed her. And you may be thinking that I can't go into work saying God's loving all over me. That's stupid. Okay, do what you got to do, but you can't be married, you can't be a parent, and you can't be a good friend if you're going to keep that private. You need to be bold, you need to be public. And notice that Mary does not magnify what God did for her, she is now magnifying what God did, is going to do with her. 
Every person in the world is called to a moment of choice. And now, I believe that as I've read this passage, I think that Mary could have walked away from this moment and said, no thanks, pick somebody else. But the reason that we still talk about Mary 2,000 years later is that she was willing to go public with her faith and because she believed in a God who was changing history. And the world is telling you that your relationship with God is private. It's just you and God, and that's enough. And that as long as God and I are good, it does not matter what anybody else does or says. That's not Christianity. Read the book of Acts. There is nothing private about the movement of God in culture. Nothing. Christians stood up and got killed for it. In America, we don't know what that's like. Worst thing that's going to happen is they're going to send us to bed with no supper. We might lose a friendship or two. But there are people in the world today, today, who are going to die because they refuse to say anything except Jesus Christ is Lord. And I don't wish that on anyone, but we need to make real choices today. Is this Christmas gift going to be something that changes us? Mary sings about God's mighty deeds that freed millions. She sings about bringing him, bringing down rule, he brings down rulers that have corrupted life. She sings about the prophecies that will be fulfilled in Jesus. It's a song of hope. And the most interesting thing I find is that at the end of the song, she points out that all of this will happen just as he said to Israel's ancestors. We shouldn't be surprised about what Jesus came to do. It was prophesied throughout all of Scripture. So every detail of this Christmas season is about whether or not Jesus was God. In fact, if you go back to the book of Genesis in chapter 18, God says to Abraham, out of your descendants, out of your descendants, Abraham, will come one, and by him, all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Merry Christmas. It was Jesus. It was a promise that God would do everything he ever promised he would do. Even though God may be slow on our calendars, he never forgets a promise that he made. So the message of Christmas is not just that God loves you in this reckless way. The message of Christmas is that God will use your life to bless generations, just like he used Mary. So one more thing I want to say as we move towards the conclusion today. The last thing I wish for you to have this Christmas season is complete satisfaction in God. God knows the itch you can't scratch. God knows that thing right now that you can't tell anybody that you're really wanting. God knows your deepest, darkest fear, your deepest desire. He knows that what needs to be moved in your heart and what needs to be uh, getting rid of. And more importantly, he knows what needs to be brought in. The reason that we celebrate God isn't because we're afraid that he's going to punish us if, he, if we don't. We celebrate God because he's good to us. He fills our every need. Verse 53, he fills the hungry, but he sends the rich away empty. It's an interesting line that some people take to say, well, God hates rich people. Not at all. But the difference between the hungry and the rich is that the rich aren't hungry. They're full of stuff that they don't need. They have everything that they want. They can make themselves satisfied, but only for a moment. The hungry will have to rely on somebody else to provide for them. And in this statement, Mary celebrates the God who will, who will satisfy the needs of the people who will profess to him that they have needs. And to those that are satisfied, God will give them to their satisfaction. He will let them remain autonomous. Listen to how Jesus introduces the kingdom. Mark chapter 5, verse 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. The poor in spirit are the ones who know that they need help. 
Now, Jesus isn't saying to go out and you can act poor and broken and humbled, and he's going to all of a sudden bless you. No, if life is good to you, if life has blessed you, then it is wrong not to give credit to God for those blessings. But the blessings that don't last beyond today, are they worth basing your life on? Of course not. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. They will find out how God scratches that itch. Matthew 5, verse 6, Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. I would say that Mary echoes Jesus, but Mary's saying all of this before Jesus was born. Mary is borrowing from the Sermon on the Mount that has not yet been preached, because the entire Magnificat is describing a kingdom that none of us should be invited to, and yet all are welcome. This song is about this young girl saying, are you kidding me? God, you're going to use me? You're going to change my whole life? And God says, yeah, if you'll let me. And Mary says, may it be unto me as you said. And the history of the world was changed. And God is asking the same question of each of us today. Will you open your life to me? Will you allow me to use you to change other people's lives like I'm changing yours? Whether you're a believer in this room today or not, whether you're just visiting family and you were nice and came along to church because they, you don't hate it, but they dragged you along here, but church has never been a priority for you. Just my challenge for you today is, are you really satisfied with anything that really lasts? If tomorrow, if, you, if the stock market crashed and you lost all of your savings, if you lost your job, if you lost your health, would you be devastated? Absolutely. But what would you turn to when your treasures, your health, and your status are gone? You see, God is telling us that he has the solution for our lives, but it's not going to make us popular or cool. It's going to make us holy, pure, and right with him. The reason that Jesus feeds the hungry and leaves the rich alone is that the hungry need a savior. If you're starving, you need someone who has food for you. If you're hurting, you need healing. If you're lonely, you need love and compassion. And I'm going to say that there is no greater source for any of those than Jesus Christ himself. So this Christmas season, will we sing and proclaim this life-changing, reckless love that we've been shown? Will we sing about the compassion and satisfaction that God brings us? Will we sing about his eternal, unchanging pursuit of everyone that you know? Will you sing of his power, his holiness, and his mercy, just like Mary did? The reason I nominate Mary as the first Christian is that Mary gave her life to one cause, to make sure that Jesus would be available to every one of us. And I, for one today, am thankful for a faithful young lady, but I am even more thankful for the child that she brought into this world and saved every one of us. Let's stand and worship him now.